Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Marshall Poe, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the network. And occasionally I like to step back in front of the microphone when I encounter a book that I find particularly interesting. I have a different role in the network right now, so I don't get to do it as much as I want to. But I saw Alan Levinovitz's book, The Limits of Religious Tolerance, which is published by our sponsor, the New Books Network's sponsor, the Amherst College Press. Uh, they've done a wonderful job of uh, producing this book, and Alan has done a wonderful job of writing it. It is obviously very timely. Again, the title is The Limits of Religious Tolerance. Tolerance is a big issue these days for reasons I, I don't think I need to go into. And so uh, Alan has done us a great service. By really boiling things down, I think he makes the various arguments and counterarguments and the nuances of religious tolerance very clear. Clarity is one of the uh, great virtues of this book. So, Alan, let me first of all thank you for writing it. Thank you so much for your kind words and for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. (laughs) Absolutely. Our pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So, I received my PhD in religion and literature from the University of Chicago, and I specialize in comparative ethics and classical Chinese thought. So what I'm really interested in is the ways in which different religious and philosophical traditions have tried to convince people of the truth, the different genres that they've used, and the kinds of strategies that people have employed. So that's my that's my central interest, and I'm now assistant professor of religion at James Madison University in Virginia. So religious epistemology is that what it's called? Did I make that up? Is that any good? No, of course. <laughs> I think that's that, that, that's absolutely right. Not and not just religious epistemology, but also the the way in which that epistemology is presented. Right. So yeah. if you're trying to if you're trying to convince someone of something, do you you know do you give them a bunch of evidence? Do you Show them your fist. Um, you know, what are the what are the right? Do you tell them a do you tell them a cryptic parable? Uh, and how do those how do those sure. connect up with with truths? Cool, cool topic. So, uh, Alan, tell us why you wrote this book. Well, as a as a professor, I am very interested in how my students engage with religion. You know, I teach a world religions class every semester. It's it's one of my you know it's it's really a pleasure to teach and. I noticed that students were very wary of arguing against any kind of religious claim from any tradition. So I know uh, just from surveying my students that many of them are practicing Christians. And yet I was surprised to find that they would always say things like, well, this is true for me and that's true for them. And it was a matter, I think, of my students not knowing how to balance the idea that some people might be wrong about their religion with their desire to be tolerant. Um, this is a virtue that everyone, you know, is, is, is told is primary that we are supposed to be religiously tolerant. It's built into, or so we think the, the fabric of our country. And yet what was happening was that the emphasis on religious tolerance resulted in my students believing that what that meant was that all truths were true to you, uh, sort of, uh, sort of religious relativism, and that, and that was frustrating to me. And I wanted to make the case that tolerance, religious tolerance, isn't necessarily something good, and that you can be respectful of people while simultaneously, in a sense of the word that I develop in the book, being intolerant of their beliefs, believing that their beliefs are wrong or false, and thinking that uh, the world would be a better place without those wrong or false beliefs. Mm -hmm. So you get right to the point here. And one of the parts of the book I really like is your um, discussion of this weird word, respect. 
And I got to say, I, I've, I've, I, I, I'm, I'm not Prussian or anything, and I'm not the brightest bulb on the tree. But I noticed a long time ago that this is one of these words that that everybody uses, and nobody knows what it means. So, <laughs> so one of the things you say in the book is that somehow the notion of religious tolerance has become mixed up with this fuzzy idea of respect. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So there's this, you know, obviously, if you if you believe something very strongly, um, for example, you think that. Uh, I don't know. You're, you're very intelligent. Um, if you tell someone, you know, actually, you're not so smart. It, it feels like you're being disrespectful um, to disabuse someone of a belief that's important to them can feel like it is a disrespectful act. And so I think in that sense, people have come to believe that respecting other people means not believing that that their core, their core identity is false or bad or wrong. And I argue in the book that that's actually not the case, that respect for people involves wanting them to believe the truth. So if I have genuine respect for a good friend, I want my good friend not just to believe the things that are easiest for them to believe, but to believe the things that are true, that will guide their life in the right direction. And so just as uh, many evangelical Christians believe that respect for other people entails evangelizing, that is changing their beliefs from something false to the salvific vision of Christ. So too, I believe that if you think religion is false, then respecting people entails in certain circumstances, trying to get them to give up their false beliefs and believe something true. In other words, respect does not mean accepting whatever anyone believes if it's important to them. And that's a, and that's a distinction that, that is, is tough for a lot of people to understand, but I think is crucial if we want to move forward in, in a culture that needs to be able to have discussions about religious truths. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I see what you're saying. This is a bit of a digression. Um, and it might involve, um, disrespecting some people. <laughs> the, um, how did we get to the position where we thought of tolerance as an aspect of respect of persons. I mean, I mean, I, who did that? Because it, it, it doesn't make sense. You're right. Well, I, you know, a part of it is that that we end up in these conversations. We end up confusing the kinds of agents, and this is what I talk about in the book, and I and I try to make this clear. Um, the idea that what a government does to its citizens and what it means for a government to respect its citizens or be tolerant of its citizens is very different from what one individual citizen might do to another. So in the context of government, for a government to be religiously tolerant and for a government to respect its citizens just means that the government shouldn't be making explicit statements about what its citizens should believe. So it's it would be disrespectful in that sense uh, if a government, although I'm not sure if if respecting someone is uh, is is exactly the verb that you would want to use with the government. Mm-hmm. But a government, in order to be respectful and tolerant of its citizens, needs to not pronounce on the truth or falsity of of most religious beliefs. But that's that then gets confused with how you ought to act with other people in every situation of your life. And so I think the way that we got to where we are today is confusing the duties of institutions like a government with the duties of individuals to each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see what you mean. So I guess I'm looking for a better word. I mean, part of the difficulty here is it's difficult to invent words. People don't like that kind of thing. But nonetheless, this word respect just does not carry the weight that we need it to carry. It seems to me that when I tell, for example, other Christians that 
If you look carefully in at least three of the Gospels, Jesus says more or less explicitly that divorce is out. No divorce just can't happen. Um, and then they feel bad. But it seems to me what's happening to them is their egos are bruised. Right. I'm that's not disrespecting them. They feel bad because they're wrong. <laughs> that's right. That, that, yeah, that's, no, I, I totally agree. And that's something, you know, again, you know, is respect. I mean, you think about this from, you know, I, I hate to use the parent analogy because it feels patronizing. But, um, you know, to respect your child is to want the best for your child. And that doesn't mean just giving them whatever they want. It doesn't mean not hurting them in the short term. It means that you care that they that they understand the world and they're good people and they believe the truth. And that sometimes involves punishing them or correcting them. And the truth is that I think we should all want that for ourselves. We should want people uh, to feel like they can tell us when we're wrong and they can tell us when our, our beliefs aren't coherent. And of course, we need to carve out situations. So the book focuses on universities um, and higher education. There are certain situations in which respect demands that we don't engage in these arguments. So, you know, you don't just grab everyone who's walking down the street and, and shout at them that they're wrong. And there's also uh, demands that respect makes of how we engage with people. So like I said, we don't shout. We don't um, insult people. We try to stick to the norms of rational discourse. We don't lie. We listen. Um, those kinds of things are are built into respect, yeah. but yeah. not just agreeing with whatever anyone says and not, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, just because you respect people doesn't mean you have to think that everything that they they want should be tolerated. That's yes. that's that's just philosophically and practically, you know, unfeasible. Yeah. Um, I'm not afraid of the kid analogy. <laughs> good, good. I, I, I'm, always wary, I'm always wary of using it, uh, but, yeah. but then I make myself the kids, so it's okay. Well, it's like my kids themselves. You know, I noticed this a long time ago that, 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 that at some stage of moral development, they they glom onto this word "fair." Like anything they don't like is unfair, right? Exactly. <laughs> anything. It doesn't matter whether it has something to do with fairness or not. And I kind of think we we treat this word respect like that. Anything right. we don't like is disrespectful. Absolutely. And it's just, you know, in a, in what people refer to, I think erroneously, but alarmistly as a post-truth world, it's very important that we don't confuse respect with everything that anyone wants to believe is true. That's a, that's a terrible, terrible place to be. And so the limits of religious tolerance, um, is, is at least on my reading, of course I wrote it. So it's what everyone thinks, but I think it's very important for people to understand that they can be respectful of other human beings and not tolerate falsehood. And that there are contexts in which it is their duty to not tolerate falsehood in order to respect other people. Yeah, and you point out some of the incredible paradoxes that are involved here, because in proselytizing religions like Christianity, you you are explicitly enjoined not to be tolerant of people that don't know the way. That's with a capital W. You yes, are not to tolerate those people. You are that's, to, you are that's to right. convert them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, and to be perfectly frank, that. That makes sense. Yeah, it does if, make if, sense. Yeah. You know, if you really love people and you care about people and you respect them and you think that faith in Christ is the only route to salvation, you'd, you'd, you, it would be crazy not to try to convert other people. And of course, you know, this word tolerant or intolerant, they've become so charged. Uh, uh, intolerance is so charged as a negative term. Yeah. But if you just think about it, if you sort of step back and say, well, what does it mean to not tolerate a belief? Well, in a certain sense, it just means thinking that the world would be better off without that belief. 
And there are plenty of beliefs that all, you know, all false beliefs, I think we would think the world would be better off without um, to a greater or lesser extent. And certainly crucial beliefs like what it is to be good or true. Um, if, if some people think that, you know, the everyone needs to believe the little truth of the Bible and other people believe that that's a disaster. Well, both sides are, are intolerant of the other side. And I think justifiably so. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with you completely. So, I, I, and I can't imagine anyone that wouldn't agree with everything you've said so far. Oh, so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad it's an airtight. Base. But you know, it, it hasn't, it doesn't, as some people would say, it begs the question, but it doesn't. It raises the question. Uh, right. And it, what the question it raises is how to actually do this. Because I, I personally, as a teacher, uh, am, am very much invested in telling, helping people find what, what is the truth with the capital T and not live in illusion. But I don't want to offend them. Um, and I also understand that as a practical matter, offending them is just not going to get me where I want to go. You know, yelling at people doesn't work, even if you're right. <laughs> that's, so, that's, that's it. That's yeah, true. Yeah. So the thing is, is like on college campuses – how can we create a context in which, you know, I can explain to other Christians that, well, you know, Christ, this divorce thing, not so much without them, like, you know, f- you know, going to the dean or the provost or whomever and saying, oh, he's intolerant. Right. Well, I, you know, one of the things that I think we all need to think about is is what what we're supposed to do in the different kinds of civic spaces that exist. And so, you know, universities especially are are a civic space of great importance. And I think that students need to understand, and I think universities need to emphasize, that this is a civic space that is carved out for civil debate in which you are meant to be intolerant of beliefs that you don't think are true. Um, that that's 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 what this space is. And to not engage in debates where you are trying to change someone's mind about something that you think is wrong is to is 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 not to respect the space. Right. It would be like it would be like going into a into a, a football game and instead of trying to win, trying to, you know, help your opponents so that the game is evenly matched, right? The whole idea of a, of a competition would sort of fall apart. And in the same way, universities are set up to be spaces in which opinions and beliefs can be tested against one another. And out of that, the sort of classical liberal vision, out of that, a contest of ideas emerges the truth. Mm-hmm. And, and so we should be grateful when someone challenges us. And we should see that not as a sign of disrespect, but as a sign of someone respecting not only us, but also the institution in which that in which that discussion is taking place. It's funny because I, I have Jewish friends who would say you've just described a shul. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, the, or the dinner table. Yeah, or the dinner table. Right. <laughs> That's where you go to try to find out exactly what the truth is. And so you have to be very tolerant. So how do we um, how do we create that context? I mean, we can't just tell people, OK. Uh, everybody uh, be polite and civil and really very nice. And, and we're going to talk about these things without rancor, without ire. And uh, let's go. It's, it's a difficult thing. I mean, the question of how to create that context has a lot to do with, for me, at least my, my skill as a teacher, right? So you have to, you have to make people feel comfortable with the idea of challenging them themselves. And so one thing I do say with regards to religion is I show people that, 
the history of all religious traditions uh, is, in fact, built out of people challenging beliefs, either challenging their own beliefs, right? So the church fathers, you know, Augustine, Aquinas, these are these are thinkers who are questioning their own beliefs, trying to find out whether they're coherent, questioning each other, debating, right? Their debates within the church. Um, and this is true, of course, in any religion, Buddhism and in Taoism and Hinduism. Um, and so when people, I think, see that, in fact, being intolerant of falsehood is the foundation for whatever religious system they embrace today, they'll become more comfortable with that. So I try to I try to explain that history as a way of of taking people into a world where debate isn't disrespectful, but in fact, essential to whatever kind of whatever kind of belief set you happen to have now. So that's one thing you can do. And the other thing is to is as a debater to genuinely care about the person you're arguing with, to be willing to admit when you're wrong and demonstrate that to other people. I think sometimes people see attacks on their beliefs, not as part of a larger project that's aimed at truth, but rather as a, as a project on the part of the attacker to demean them or undermine them. And so people really need to genuinely be invested in the truth and be willing to correct themselves when they're wrong and be part of a dialogue that's ultimately aimed at something greater than themselves. Yes, I, I think that's right. I'm reminded of a couple of things. One is, is that um, there's a doctrine in some Christian communities called continuing revelation. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's basically cover for, yeah, we used to believe that, but we don't believe that anymore. And that's because God has revealed himself in a new way. <laughs> I was like that very much continuing revelation because it goes on. No question about it. And then the the other thing that what you said r reminds me of is that really you kind of have to agree before you begin debating these things that you're all on the same team, that you're not opponents. And I, I always try to tell my students this, that, look, we're all trying to do the same thing. And we're getting there in different ways, and we're going to talk about it, and we're going to try not to be offended because none of us really knows the truth. That's Plato for you. Um, so let's just try to move forward together. Right. And, and the thing is, uh, we're, we're all on the same team, I think, within the, within the context of the university class. I mean, there's, exactly. there's different arenas, right? Just within that. the context of the university classroom or, or as people who are all trying to get at the truth collectively. Um, and that's a different, I, I, that's, that's a different kind of thing than, for example, being on the same team when it comes to whether or not we believe that abortion is okay. Right. Exactly. And, yeah. I think it is perfectly fine to want to change other people's beliefs regarding abortion. Um, and so in that sense, it's, it's good to not be on the same team when it comes to abortion within the larger context of being on the same team of trying to get to a better society or trying to get to truth. And so these, these fights and these disagreements are, are part of a larger collective project. So I think you're absolutely right to, to emphasize that disagreement is actually part of a larger and in a sense more important agreement about where we want to go and who, and who we want to be as individuals and as a culture. Yeah, that's why, I mean, I think <clears throat> practically speaking, not philosophically or any sort of, I don't know, absolute sense that I always try to distinguish with my students and in my own life the difference between thinking about what the truth is in terms of religion and religious practice. There's lots of times when, in my own religious practice that I, I just simply put those questions aside because I need to do what the religion 
that I currently believe in and may not believe in in the future does for me. I mean, in my spiritual community, there are things that we do, and uh, I, I just don't think about them very much. They're not harmful to anybody that much I know, or I wouldn't do them. But they, they are, we sort of, I, I, when I enter that context of what, what I'll call a church, um, th- then I've sort of set those things aside. And I'm doing what we all have provisionally agreed upon, only provisionally, but we've agreed upon these things. Um, now we may go have dinner or lunch afterwards and shout at each other. I hope not <laughs> shout, but um, but for now we're going to do these things and we're going to go on in that way. Right, absolutely, and that you know that brings us back to this idea of different different civic spaces. Um, it doesn't make sense to reappropriate a church or a mosque or a synagogue as a as a place of debate it wouldn't right. make sense to stand up in the middle of the the pastor the, the the pastor speaking and and try to debate them uh that that's that's a form of disrespect right so a, a way to understand respect that i think is more fruitful is not as tolerance of someone's beliefs but rather as a an agreement to abide by the rules of discourse that govern a particular arena. So to be respectful is to allow someone to speak and listen to their words in the context of a classroom. It is not to grant them the truth um, and, and not push back against them after they're done speaking. And again, you know, with the church, right? It, to be respectful is to not walk into someone else's church, interrupt their service and shout that they're wrong, but it may also involve going into the voting booth and pulling the lever for defunding that church right, or for, right. you know, or, or, or conversely pulling the lever for getting prayer into the classroom or whatever it is that you happen to think is right. So there are actions that take place in the voting booth as another civic space that are, that are manifestly intolerant of other people's beliefs and ways of life. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I, in fact, I can't really imagine what voting what it would even mean to vote in a way that tolerates everyone's, you know, beliefs and, and practices. You, you have to make these decisions. Either you vote for this law or you don't. And whichever way you go, you're going to be saying, well, some people are wrong. And I don't think they should be allowed to behave the way they do or believe what they believe. Right, right. I, I agree with you completely about what you say concerning context. And it, and it raises for me this notion that you don't hear much about anymore, but um, – because it is a little bit vague. Actually, it's a lot vague. And that is wisdom versus knowledge or something else. Because it seems to me like, or as the Buddhist might say, skill. A skillful person does not go into the synagogue and denounce Judaism. <laughs> right. Yes. That will not work. <laughs> right. That's, that's absolutely right. Right. A skillful person does it in more subtle ways if they want to criticize, I don't know, the Hebrew Bible or whatever it happens to be. And and, you know, I guess one of the things that we've not done a very good job of is teaching our students to be wise in that way. Because we tend to, yeah. I, don't, I don't know, go ahead. No, no, I, I, I agree with you. And in fact, I think that, I think what's happened is students have, they've almost done the reverse, which is that they've become wise about how to respect people in contexts outside of the classroom, say. Um, and then they've done the poor job of importing those into the classroom. Yeah. So they, they, they understand that, you know, what is it, you know, only talk about, you know, only talk about health and the weather at the dinner right. table kind of rules or with strangers. Um, and they bring that into the classroom and that actually gets in the way of, of the sort of practice that I think should take place in the classroom. And similarly, they, they've actually imported 
the standards that govern dialogue, you know, in the street with strangers, they've imported those to their own kind of internal dialogue. And so, and, and that's, and that's a terrible place to be where all you do when you think about your own beliefs is, well, it's true for me. And we'll leave that there. Um, so the same kind of technique that you use to be respectful of, of, of a stranger who believes something different, you actually use to insulate your own beliefs from criticism. Because after all, if tolerance means letting everyone believe what they want, if you extend that tolerance to yourself, it means there's no reason to question your own beliefs. After all, you want to believe them, so might as well just leave them there. So that, that tolerance ends up getting exploded into – uh, a relativist understanding of, right. of truth that I think is extremely unwise. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I'm thinking about this as a teacher and pedagogically speaking, it seems to me there are two sides to this. And one is telling our students to be civil, very civil. And that involves a certain amount of wisdom and skill. On the other hand, and this is the part I think we do a very bad job of, I will, I don't know about you, man, maybe you're great, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> is to teach them to be bold and to say what they really think. Although I, I guess you know to to be fair to them, I don't know if they can do that. Is there penalties for saying what you really think? At least at my university, right? Well, that's that's I think you know this is and I've written about this elsewhere, um, but I think that there is a way in which a, a culture that demands that you not criticize people's core identities. Um, and that's the, that's the left and the right in our, in our country, in the yeah. United States right now, this idea that if someone has a religious belief, you don't criticize it. This idea that if someone comes from a particular culture or has a set of cultural practices that are important to them, you don't criticize it. That idea, which I actually think is a, is a reasonable one in certain contexts in the context of the university really forecloses on the kind of debates that we need to have if universities are to perform their function, which is to equip people with the tools that help them to determine the truth and think critically about their own beliefs and the beliefs of others. Um, if you don't have uh, the the whetstone, if you will, to sharpen your your intellectual knife on, if all it is is just soft and and fluffy, then then that won't happen, and you will end up with people who are unwilling and unable to criticize themselves and criticize others about the beliefs that are of utmost importance to how we live our daily lives and, and make our laws. Yeah. I, I guess I'm reminded of something that you say bravely in the book, and, and that is about um, what Barack Obama said about ISIL or ISIS, as we call it, that it's it's not Islam. When um, And you say that, it, well, you know, it, it is somehow related to Islam, isn't it? And, and that's right, it is. Um, I can only imagine that I don't have that conversation in my classroom um, because quite honestly, I'm afraid of it. I, I'm afraid both of offending students and I'm afraid of losing my job. <laughs> so, um, so what, 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 uh, what would you say about the current state of, uh, I, I almost said the word tolerance of, um, of openness to those kinds of, I guess I might call them critical, but I think of them as truth seeking ideas in the classroom. I think it's I think it's extraordinarily important that we not whitewash any tradition um, or any set of facts for the sake of a tolerance that is misguided. So for me, I I do my best to showcase 
these kinds of debates. Uh, take Islam, for example. One of the one of the lessons that I teach my students uh, is is about a translation of the Quran by Michael Sells, who was actually a professor of mine when I was at the University of Chicago. Um, he made this translation of the Quran. It was assigned, I believe, at UNC Chapel Hill um, for incoming freshmen, and they were sued by people who said that. Sells had only chosen the nice passages from the Quran, and he was trying to deceive people about the evil, evil nature of Islam. And so what I do in order, to, in order to expose my students to these kinds of ideas without risking um, frightening them or without risking feeding into stereotypes, negative stereotypes of Islam that are already uh, inaccurate, I just present the debate to them so that we can think through – the problems that a professor like myself or Michael Sells might have and the kinds of considerations that that we have to that we have to think through when we're presenting this material. And I think that way, actually, it sort of sneaks the material itself in um, and also frames it in a larger context that helps students understand why these questions are difficult and the decisions that get made about about what gets presented to them in the classroom. Yeah, I, I use a similar sort of technique. And it's not entirely true that I don't discuss these things. What I do is I say that we're talking about the ideas, and I don't want anyone in the classroom to be, at this point, identified with the ideas. So I present arguments, and I tell them, I'm not going to tell you whether I support this or not. I'm simply going to present the argument as best I can. Here it is. And uh, that that usually you know distances me as a person from from the ideas, which and I think that's reasonably effective. I mean, actually, it's, it's often very effective, and the students start to do it themselves, which is good because it has them taking positions which they ordinarily wouldn't take, simply to further the logic of the ideas. But I guess what I was getting to was, what should we think about um, these speech codes, which are. I don't know. I think there are fewer than there were 10 years ago, but they're still around and they govern what can be said. Um, what do you, you mean? On, you mean on, you mean on, on campuses? university campuses? Yes. Yeah. So I, you know, on the one hand, I think there's a way in which the prevalence of the codes and their strictness has been exaggerated through a spate of stories that really captured the national attention. Um, so I, I think that there's less to fear personally from them than people might think. But at the same time, as you said, right, you know, you, you feel sometimes uh, wary of bringing things up in the classroom. I do, too. Lots of professors do um, fearing for their own jobs. And similarly, students, I think, are fearful, you know, even if even if the codes themselves aren't draconian or aren't as draconian as they seem, there is an atmosphere that's that's been created that that does foreclose on people's abilities to express themselves freely. And I think that universities have a duty as, as do, uh, as do newspapers, but the free press is a different story, but uh, universities have a duty to push back against that. There is a reason that freedom of speech is so essential to campuses and to the jobs that educators in higher education perform. And so I think there should be, robust protections against any kind of consequences for speech in a classroom that is civil, but disres but, but intolerant of falsehood. So I think that that's, that's, you know, that's an important thing, right? If a professor calls a student a, a racial slur or says to them that they're stupid, there's no place for that in a university. Right. <clears throat> um, but if a professor says that a student's belief is false or that, 
uh, or another student uh, makes an assertion about a religion or even a race that is made as part of a larger discussion of what's true and what's false, I, I think that we need to really bend over backwards to make sure that the primary goal of this civic space, which is the search for truth in education, is preserved. Do you think those safeguards and protections exist? Well, that's, I, I, I mean, I guess in a sense, that's an empirical question. So yeah, on, it is, on, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'm putting you on the spot and I don't expect yeah. you to know. I, well, no, on, on, some, on some campuses they are and on, and on some campuses they are. Obviously, tenure is one way of protecting those interests for, for faculty. So in that sense, a lot of faculty who are untenured don't have those protections. Yeah. And I think that it would be good if we built those kinds of protections in for contingent faculty who are teaching more and more of our classes and for untenured faculty who are, who are tenure track. I think, that would be, I think that would be a good thing to see. And I also think that students need to be taught um, and I and I talk about these the codes that are distributed at universities a little bit in my book. They need to be taught about the difference between tolerance and respect, and they need to be assured from the moment that they arrive on a campus that it is a place, the classroom, for them to express themselves and to argue for what they think is true, and to question other people who disagree with them, and also to be open to having themselves questioned. And so. If that kind of mission statement is in place, which it is not at a lot of universities, a lot of emphasis on tolerance, but not a lot of emphasis on, you know, not being tolerant of falsehood. Right. So I think right. we've forgotten. I think we've forgotten about that other the flip side of the mission um, to, you know, tolerance, which really means respect is emphasized a lot on campuses. Listen to other people, um, you know, allow them to express themselves. But that's also that's also in the service of, you know, arguing with people when they're wrong and allowing your own mind to be changed when you're wrong. And that's, and that in the end, I think is the primary mission of the university is to equip people with the skills necessary to distinguish, you know, truth from falsehood and good from bad. Um, I mean, that's not the only mission. Of course, there's, there's a lot of things the university does, but in, in an ideal sense, that's, that's what the liberal university, classically liberal, again, not politically liberal, was, was meant to do. And I think that we need to emphasize that to students and, and, and put, put safeguards in place so that when, when they do that and they're challenged, um, they don't feel like there's a threat to continuing their education. Right on, man. <laughs> so I think we should send every freshman in the United States your book. I agree, <laughs> and, and, because, and because you can get it online for free. For free, yeah. It's, it's not you know all universities I'm sure could afford to to buy the beautifully made paperback copy from Amherst College Press. Right, there you go. Uh, I think there's no I think there's no reason for them not to all have it. I think we should get you on Oprah. <laughs> Absolutely, Books for, a book for everyone yeah. inside their inside their new car. Exactly. There you go. Uh huh. Oprah. I think Oprah would be good for this. Well, I mean, I I, I see what you say. Also, I want to say that from personal experience, I was at one university where I had tenure, and then I resigned that position for personal reasons. Not, I mean, it wasn't anything scandalous or anything. Trust me. Um, to do something else, and now I work as a lecturer at another university, and I have to tell you that the way that I teach is quite a bit different. <laughs> yeah, it's well, definitely it's, changed. There's no question about it. Um, and I think you know this this idea. It's it's a it's a difficult balance. Mm. The balance between respect and tolerance. You know, like you said, how do you how do you make the classroom a place where people feel safe expressing their own beliefs, but simultaneously um, something that Alistair McIntyre 
the political philosopher who I, who I cite extensively in the book, how do you also make it a place of constrained combat, right? For him, um, you know, he's, he's Catholic. Uh, the university needs to be a place of constrained combat where ideas about fundamental principles do battle so that if nothing else, people can sharpen their own, you know, intellectual tools, but also hopefully move towards criticism of, of what it is that the, that their primary beliefs are based on, and and in so doing, get us closer to uh, to the right place in, in our in our political culture and in our own lives. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of, there's a lot of emphasis in, in, in my institution, and for good reason. But I think at every institution these days on what's called critical thinking, whatever that is, and um, I always think of it as just skepticism. But I think that everybody is naturally born, sort of evolutionarily speaking, a critical thinker. I don't know what goes on in your head, but. <laughs> Most of it is critical of other people. I think we're not very good critical actors. Right. Absolutely. That's, no, I think you're absolutely right. And, and one of the scary things to me about tolerance as a, as a principle in universities is that we don't have – we don't get many opportunities to submit our own worldviews to the court of public opinion in a way that is directly personal, where we can respond, where we can hear from another human being who disagrees with us, where we can, where we have an expert, you know, a sort of referee, if you will, the professor adjudicating the disputes, making sure that everyone's being clear and logical and using facts. And if we turn the university into a place where it is simply about sharing beliefs and tolerating beliefs, then what ends up happening is people go to the university, they share their beliefs, and then they go back to their own enclave where they revert to what we all do, which is criticizing people who are unlike us, in a, surrounded by people who are like us. Yeah. And so it's more important than ever now, you know, people talk about bubbles and, and how being in a bubble is dangerous. Well, the university is a place, ideally, where you get to get outside of your bubble. And if when you're outside of the bubble, all you do is reaffirm everyone else and say, well, that's true to you. And this is true to me. The we're lost. All it is, yeah. is all it is, is a sharing of bubbles and no popping. Yeah. <laughs> and there needs to, it needs to be a little bubble popping done yeah. at universities. I mean, I, I should say this is a shout out. Uh, we've shouted out to Amherst college press, great institution, but this is a shout out for the institution where I teach, which is the university of Massachusetts and the honors college, the Commonwealth honors college. And they don't allow that there. No, we don't have bubbles. <laughs> we don't. And the classes I teach in particular are basically designed to get people out of their bubbles. We just don't do that. I was like, you're going to hear lots of ideas which you're going to strenuously disagree with, and you're going to very, to use the word we don't like, respectfully <laughs> listen and engage them. That's what you're going to well, do. That's what we teach. I, respect, you know, again, and like I say in the book, respect is very important, um, provided that it is not made synonymous with allowing people to believe whatever they want. Right. Uh, right. Well, you know, I, I was going to say, I always tell my students, you have a right uh, to your opinion, but you don't have a right to be wrong. That's that. That's true. <laughs> that's right. Well, you know, it was sort of like uh, it, it's it's you, you the, the, the language of rights often gets confused. Right. Which is a political language gets confused with with philosophy. Right. So, well, do you have the right? To be wrong, well, you do. You do yeah, actually sure, yeah, have the yeah, political right, yeah. but that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that I still can't fight tooth and nail to get you to change your mind, and I can't vote for laws that are based on the premise that you are wrong. Um, right. So, in a trivial sense, people have the people have the right to believe whatever they want, but in the in the important sense that we are all trying to believe true things and get other people to believe true things, uh, they don't. Yeah, and also, you know, a, a mathematician 
friend of mine taught me that a useful way to think about things is to think about boundary cases and to return to religion in particular. There are some religious practices which we are totally intolerant of, and 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 we don't uh, hesitate for a moment to say that are wrong. I mean, human sacrifice is one. We, I mean, I don't know any religions that currently do it, but um, certainly everyone agrees that that would not be acceptable, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's and how do you know we got there the same way we got to all of the beliefs that we hold today through a. Uh, not being tolerant. Yes, exactly. This is exactly uh, not, what I'm saying, is that it may seem as if our religions are benign enough that they shouldn't be subject to that kind of scrutiny. But the, the fact of the matter is they always have been by people both in the religion and outside the religion. I, want, I mean, and sometimes it takes really nasty forms, anti-Semitism, anti-Catholicism in the case of – well, I mean, those are just two examples. There are tons of other ones. Um, but what we're talking about isn't anti-Catholicism or anti-Semitism. It's – um, to use a word I don't particularly like, but it's it's nice and soft. It's kind of the interrogation of religious claims and beliefs on various grounds. That's absolutely right, and that's appropriate. That's necessary. Yes. I mean, in a, in a certain way, I can't even imagine what it would look like if we didn't do that. And I say this to my students: you know, you have the choice of being tolerant of beliefs in certain contexts, but you don't have that choice in other contexts. Again, the voting booth is a really good example. There is no way to vote for everyone gets what they want. That's just, that's just not a, that's just not an option on the ballot. Um, that's, you know, and so it's, it's, it's best, I think, if when you are deciding that some people don't get what they want, that, that you're deciding that in a way that's, that's been critical of, of their beliefs and of your own and that, your decisions, your intolerance, which inevitably happens when you are out in the world, you are inevitably intolerant of some people's ways, ways of life, that, that that's actually thoughtful and that we have institutions in place that are meant to ensure that our intolerance is as respectful, if you will, as, as possible of other people and that our intolerance is based on, on the set of skills that that are necessary for coming to truth in a way that's responsible. I guess, you know, let me, I'm going to put you on the spot just for a second. Okay. You mind? Sure. Okay. So how would you discuss with your students the reasoning behind a, I want to say fundamentalist Christian, but I don't know what kind of Christian, some Christian who says that uh, gay marriage is just wrong, wrong on its face and not wrong on its face, but wrong for specific scriptural reasons and should not be allowed in the United States without offending them. I don't know about where you teach, but where I teach, that's anathema, right? Because everybody should be able to get married. Well, so I, one of the things <clears throat> I do is is present questions like that in, just in terms of wanting to wanting to think through the foundation for the, the foundation for the claim, look at the evidence, look at the arguments and and force people to try to articulate all of that material and challenge each other when they think there's something missing. So you brought up divorce, for example, in the mm -hmm. scriptures. One of the things that, and, uh, you know, Christian apologists who are against gay marriage are familiar with this, but it's important anyway, is to bring up the, the instances of, of objections to homosexuality in the Bible, to trace the history of the debate, and then to extrapolate the implications of the opposition to homosexuality to other issues like divorce. Right. And, the, the best thing I can do as a professor, I think, is to set up a situation in which students are challenging each other and I'm challenging them to be consistent in their application 
of evidence and logic. And I don't know what will end up happening. Maybe some student, maybe maybe some of my students will end up believing that that gay marriage is immoral, or maybe some students will end up, you know, having their beliefs that gay marriage is immoral shaken. Uh, I, I don't know. What I do know is that it is important for everyone to engage in that kind of critical examination of the logic of their beliefs and the evidence that that they're using, so that as a culture we are able to communicate with each other effectively, not talk past each other. And so that we are capable of recognizing mistakes that we make when it comes to our, our beliefs and the foundation of those beliefs. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the best critical thinker about this because I agree with everything you just said. Well, I think that shows that you're a really good critical thinker. I, I want to come back with something, you know, kind of you know, that will deconstruct what you just said, but I don't really have anything to say because essentially it's what I do in the classroom too. I say, look, you know, this is about the ideas and let's try to articulate exactly what these people think. And by doing that, I think we'll come to understand that doesn't mean accept, understand their positions. And then of course we can engage them once we understand them. Uh, well, what, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say, I think, I mean, if I may deconstruct myself, um, I think one of the one of the problems with my own argument is that it doesn't address at length the fact that people come into a space like the classroom with power asymmetries. And that's important to recognize. There are some people who feel confident asserting the truth of their beliefs, either because the culture outside of the classroom has already told them they're correct or because they happen to be confident people, whatever the reason, they think that they're intelligent. And so having a conversation within the classroom does mean making sure that people who are less secure about their beliefs for whatever reasons feel comfortable expressing those beliefs. And so you you do have to take that kind of interpersonal relationship into account. And that means that Sometimes you have to be harder on one side than another, if only to set the stage for a debate in which everyone feels like they are on equal footing. And that's something I, I, you know, again, it it depends on the on the situation. But I would say, though, that whatever else it is that you are doing, that that balancing needs to be in the service of truth. So ultimately, it shouldn't be about balancing people so that everyone gets to express themselves. It should be about balancing people so that everyone gets to critique each other and themselves. And I think that's, that's where, you know, even if people believe that we need to be careful about telling other people that they're wrong, because some people have been told they're wrong a lot. I do think that that care needs to be in the service of truth, not the service of some kind of uncritical tolerance that allows anyone to be right about whatever it is that's important to them. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I agree in general with what you say, although I would also say that I've seen in my own classroom many times in which people will say, well, that person over there who's green and the green people have been subject to historical oppression for a long time. So I'm just not going to say anything about green people. Right. And the green person might be just like, I don't give a what you say. I would say what you want, you know, (laughs) but they're like, no way. We're not talking about that because the green person's in the room. (laughs) Yeah. I I know. It's it's, it's funny. And you talked about, you know, your, your courage in the classroom. I mean, I just recently taught, I'm teaching a, a theories and methods class in the study of religion. And I have a book written in the nineties called the black Bible Chronicles, which was essentially a translation of sections of the Bible into African-American vernacular. Um, 
And it's a really interesting book, and it, it brings up a lot of questions about what it means to be faithful to Scripture. But for a very long time, I've been scared to bring that book into the classroom simply because I'm afraid that addressing the role of race vis-a-vis religion is something that would offend people. And I'm, I'm right. proud to say, to toot my own horn, that th- this year I overcame that. All right. Yay. <laughs> and my students, they rose, they rose to the challenge, right? They were they – were, they were thoughtful and respectful, and when they saw that I was able – that I was willing to make the relationship between race and religion something that we could talk about, they were also willing to talk about it, and they disagreed with each other respectfully. And, and in short, I, it was just – it was great for me because I, I realized that if I do the kinds of things that I'm preaching that we should do, students, students will rise to the challenge. They are, they are smart. And they are courageous. And if they see the kind of critical discourse that I think is so important and that I talk about in my book, if they see that modeled by their, by their professors and by their instructors, by and large, I think they will, they will rise to the challenge in, in a way that will make you know, the university and their, and their educators proud of them. Yeah, that, that's in my experience as well. And I, I talk about a lot of very controversial things in my classes. And I'm, you know, that's just what we do here. And and I, I've not had but a couple of cases where people, you know, I, I, were, were were sort of shaken by what what we were doing, and and um, and even in those cases, I you know, there was some particular going on. So m- my experience is that they don't have, they're not as thin skinned as they've been portrayed in the media, not not by a long shot. That they're kind of they kind of are, they've wanted to talk about this stuff their whole life, and they've never been able to, and here it is. Yep. And I think that's they, they welcome it. It's like, okay, finally I can be an adult. <laughs> yeah. It's it's almost it's almost as if it's almost as if they've been trained. And again, not to, you know, this is to, to, to bring it back to the book, but it is in part about the book. It's almost as if they've been trained that respect means never disagreeing right. or never bringing up controversial opinions or never saying to someone else that they're wrong. But deep down inside, they know that that can't be true. Yeah. They know that to respect people means to be honest with them. They know that to respect people means to tell them when, when they're wrong so that they can correct themselves. And they know that being respected by someone else means that that someone else will have the courage to tell you when you're wrong. You know, you don't want to be surrounded by people who, when you've got, you know, intellectual spinach stuck in your proverbial teeth, don't tell you about it, right? You want someone to tell you, hey <laughs> – you got your flies down, right? right? I think that we've come to the point where we just don't, you know, it's like flies down. Well, that's, it's your right to have your fly down. And I don't want to say that because it makes me uncomfortable, but that's not, you know, I think everyone knows deep down inside, they don't want to be walking around with the fly down. And, and and that's, that's important. I think a lot of the tension, um, political tension in our nation today also is, is a kind of, as a kind of repression that people feel on both sides of the political spectrum about not being able to say what they think about other people's beliefs. Right, and right. that doesn't mean you need to be uncivil about it. It doesn't mean you need to be disrespectful. Right, right exactly. But you should still yeah. have the ability and the space to express clear, rational, evidence-based dissent yeah. when someone when someone believes something that you think is wrong. Yeah, and but that's something people have to be taught and I'm afraid that they're not being taught that. They're thought they're being taught to be thin-skinned and you know, I, the first part of my classes are always attempt it's an attempt to make them feel safe and it's like one of the things I do is I 
you probably don't know about this, but Big Bird has a song called Everyone Makes Mistakes. Do you know that song? Everyone makes mistakes. So, yes, they do. Your sister and your brother and your dad and mommy, too. So I would sing that to them in order to make a fool of myself because that's, you know, that's an important part of being open. And then, you know, just look, this is something you learned in kindergarten, man. Yeah. Make mistakes. That's it. Absolutely. Well, that's another thing I try to do is I try to model for them, you know, I'm, I make mistakes in class, right? And I think a lot of professors try to try oh to pull God. off this kind of omniscience, omniscience oh thing. God. So I'll just say, you know, if a student corrects me on something, if I don't know something, I show them. You know, I'll, I'll bring up the internet on the on the projector and try to find, you know, fact check myself. And when I'm wrong, admit I'm wrong because I think that that's another thing. This idea that 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 it's undignified to be wrong that goes along with the idea that to be yeah. respectful of people, you <laughs> have to say that they're right. You know, but in fact, I think there's nothing more powerful and awesome. Then finding out that you're wrong, owning it, and changing your mind. Right, to me, that's, right. that's, that's, that's a terrific intellectual virtue. It's that's one that I'm proud to have, and I think that, that other people ought to be proud to, to do that as well. That's funny. We went to the same teaching schools. Obviously, we didn't go to any teaching schools, but I do the same thing. I tell my students to get their cell phones out and fact check me as I talk. <laughs> and it's sometimes withering but kind of funny. <laughs> so yeah i agree completely alan we've taken up a ton of your time i'm really sorry i said i'd get you off the phone but it's hard to get you off the phone because you're so interesting well i i, I appreciate that it's been a it's been a real pleasure uh, yeah. talking with you about this absolutely so let me um ask our traditional final question on the new books network what are you working on now well i've got i've got two projects in the works one is an academic book called the gentleman and the jester two forms of ethical pedagogy. And in it, what I do is suggest that there are two ways to teach people how to be good, broadly construed. One of them is by modeling goodness for them and telling them how to be good, which is the gentleman. And the other is by mocking what their current <laughs> perspective is and by and by giving them no model whatsoever. So the hideous, the hideous gesture that that just does ludicrous things and gives you absolutely no guidance. So it is about <laughs> it is it is about those two models. And then I'm writing a uh, a popular book. So I, what I mean is for meant for for popular audience um, about the way in which mythic discourse distorts truth and how we can guard against that. So I'm I'm interested in. What kinds of basic stories, like a nostalgia story, so the idea of a, of a lost paradise, what kinds of basic myths are out there that, that are extremely compelling but distract us from an objective assessment of the facts on the ground? Well, Alan, I want to read those books. You definitely call me when they are uh, done, and we'll have you back on the show, and uh, I'm going to pay you my highest compliment. You can teach my kids anytime. <laughs> Thank you, Marshall. That, that, that would be, that would be ter- that would be terrific. I really I really I don't know if you'll that. ever get the chance, but you can. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Alan Levinovitz on the show today about his uh, book, The Limits of Religious Tolerance. That's the religious of religious tolerance, and this book is free, free as in beer, free. So you can get it from the Amherst College Press website, and you can just download it and give it to the. Um, freshmen of your acquaintance, <laughs> they will profit mightily thereby. I absolutely guarantee you that. So, Alan, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Absolutely. And let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast, um, thank you very much for listening, and uh, we hope to talk to you soon. <laughs>